Well, if you have joined us since the beginning of our service this morning, welcome to Cornerstone Presbyterian Church. We're delighted that you're with us as we come into the presence of our Lord and worship Him in spirit and in truth this morning. You're coming on a good Sunday morning, not that there are Sunday mornings that are not good, but you're coming on a particularly good Sunday morning because we are beginning a brand new series and the beloved epistle of Philippians, a letter of the Apostle Paul. Now, I mentioned in the pastoral notes this morning that this is one of my favorite books in all of the scriptures. And as I wrote that line this week, I was thinking to myself, now, how many times have you heard those words from my lips? This is one of my favorite books of the scriptures. And I thought to myself, I need to be careful about how often I use that phrase, you're going to quit believing me as often as I say it, because the truth is, my favorite passage of the Bible is usually the one I'm in at the moment. It's the one that's on my mind or on my heart. But when I say that Philippians is one of my favorite books in all of the Bible, I mean that in a special way. Uh, that book has been used by the Lord in some really particular ways in my life, in some turning points over the course of my own growth in grace. I can remember particular passages of Scripture from Philippians at low points in my life or stuck points in my life or uh, difficulties or trials or even in places of great encouragement where the promises and the instructions of Philippians just kind of ring, uh, has, have rung true to me and the Lord have used them in mighty ways to just give shape to my own soul in life in Christ. And so when I think of some of the most well-known passages in in uh, the letter of Philippians, phrases of, of verses that you all would know, like, um, like to live is Christ and to die is gain. Uh, to rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And I know this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And I could go on and on with the phrases from the letter of Philippians, and maybe even as you're hearing them roll off my tongue here for just a second, you're thinking to yourself, all of that's in Philippians? Those are some of my favorite passages, in fact, in and I think that's probably true for really a lot of us here in this room. But one of the passages that has meant much to me over the years has been Philippians 3, 13 and 14, where the Apostle Paul, uh, writing to this church in Philippi, who is under uh, battles and struggles both from within its ranks, within the congregation itself, and from without, from the culture around, uh, encourages them not to give up. And we're going to see that's part of the language here in Philippians chapter 1, which we read here in just a minute. The Apostle Paul said this in Philippians 3, 13 and 14, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You may have noticed that I actually entitled this study of Philippians to press on toward 
uh, the goal. That's what we're going to actually seek to do over the course of this letter together is to say, Lord, take us further towards the goal, the upward prize that has been laid up for us already in heaven through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Prepare us to move forward in the Christian life, to strain towards the finish line, to lean in to the tape. The Apostle Paul loves to use the metaphor of athletics and the metaphor of running to describe the Christian life. And when he uses those metaphors, one of the things he's trying to say to us is, I want you to know the Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Uh, It's often the case that we start off really well with various commitments in the course of our lives. But the proof in the pudding, according to the Apostle Paul here, is actually pressing on enduringly all the way to the end. As I alluded uh, just a little bit ago to a class that I was taking uh, this week, uh, one of the stories that was told in the classes we were talking about perseverance and endurance for uh, a bit of a, or a little portion of what we were studying this week, a story was told about a pastor whose um, interns had come in very excitedly into the church office because they had just shared uh, the gospel to one of the persons in the local neighborhood there in the church, and the person had accepted the Lord Jesus Christ on the spot. And they were very thrilled at the evidences of God's work in in the life of the gospel ministry there at that local uh, congregation. And they come into the pastor all excited. I kind of see them a little bit like the disciples after they come out from having been sent out by uh, Jesus to do ministry. And they talk about Satan falling like lightning and having all kinds of success in ministry. They come in and they say, we're so excited. So-and-so has just accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and, and Lord. And the pastor says, we'll see. And you might say to yourself, what a Debbie Downer. What's wrong with that guy? He needs an attitude correction. Like this moment is one to rejoice with those who rejoice. This is an exciting moment. But of course, he was a pastor to an intern, and part of what he was trying to do was to calibrate some expectations. He followed up that we'll see with, I'll be even more excited than you are right now if we don't see just that person accept Christ at this moment in time in history, but in the days to come, we get to bury them in the Lord. Because he knew that the Christian life has the potential of really shaking out, as it were, The faith in someone, a seed that's planted in shallow soil, or the seed that's planted in thorny ground, may not last in its endurance in terms of its fruit to the end. Perseverance is key in the Christian life. Now, Paul, as he's writing to the church at Philippi, he's actually writing to a church right along those lines. They need to be encouraged. They need to be uh, strengthened in the Lord. And as we come before this particular letter together, would ask that you would simply lay your heart bare before the Lord and its instructions to you through the letter of Philippians. You would let the Lord come and do the renovation that needs to happen inside of you and the direction that needs to happen in the behavioral and in the life commitments that needs to flow out of you in the days to come. Because he's preparing you to get ready to seize upon the goal of the upward prize of the call that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so with that hope and, and, uh, 
and expectation in view, let's look at the text together today. Just the first five verses of Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are so expectant being before your word this morning and in the presence of your Holy Spirit who abides closely when your congregation is gathered in your name. We are so expectant to be able to hear from you that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that you would open up our minds to behold that which is wonderful in your word. And all of your word is wonderful. And we would ask that the wonders that you would have us to know and believe right now would come home to our hearts in a powerful and transformative way. Let us read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this word. That for the sake of Christ, we might endure all the way to the end. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to spend some time this morning as we look at this text orienting you to the letter of Philippians and reminding you or teaching you for the first time uh, a little bit about the nature of this letter and something about its background and history, something about its writer and its recipients. Sort of lay foundations because we have 18 weeks together in this glorious uh, letter. And so it's appropriate as we start in on the teaching of Philippians that we spend a little bit of time uh, discussing uh, where it came from and what the Apostle Paul's uh, mission and, and goal is in writing this letter to the church that he dearly loves. And along those lines, I want to start by really reflecting contextually on the church at Philippi, not so much the words that we just read in the text, but giving you background for understanding this letter and the church that Paul writes to so that you can grasp uh, more clearly why it is that he speaks the way that he does to this particular church and hopefully have that kind of impact on our own hearts and life. And so the first point that I really want you to take note of as we begin our time in the Word this morning is to see the church at Philippi is really an establishment of a gospel mission. That's what the Apostle Paul has done uh, in the planting of the church at Philippi. He has established a gospel mission. Now, why do I put it that way? Well, if you look back in the book of Acts, and you might even find it helpful to have a finger in the book of Acts, back in Acts 15 and 16, because it's there where we actually read about the end of what was one of the highest points in the Apostle Paul's ministry, um, coming out of the Jerusalem council in Acts 15, where the whole of the church came together and made some very important doctrinal, uh, theological 
practical decisions for the life of the church in the first century. So the church came together and had a very successful council together. They finished that council in 15, and immediately the Apostle Paul begins thinking about where he's going to go next in his second missionary journey at the opening of Acts chapter 16. Now here's what's interesting about that, is the Apostle Paul, as he's there with Silas and later Timothy, He pulls them together and says, you know what we need to do? We need to go back over all of the churches that we have planted in the first missionary journey. uh, And and we need to check on them and see how it is that they're doing. To go back to those churches and to strengthen them and to encourage them. And that's exactly what Paul and Silas began to do. And then uh, then Timothy later uh, joined them to go visit these churches. But as they take off towards Galatia, we're told in Acts 16 that the Holy Spirit forbade them to speak. It's a really fascinating passage. The Holy Spirit forbade them to speak. Now, you and I, probably as we hear a phrase like that, we think, what does that mean? Well, the text doesn't uh, it doesn't give in to our curiosities in that moment. It doesn't even describe what that means, except that it's being patently clear that the Holy Spirit stood in the way, in an irrevocable way, to the plans, the ministry plans that the Apostle Paul had to go in and visit all of the churches that he had planted and check up on them. But he doesn't tell the Apostle Paul that directly. He just forbades him to speak by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul, regrouping as any serial church planter and mission-minded man might do, pulls together Silas and Timothy and says, well, let's head over to Bithynia. And he begins to move towards Bithynia. And you know what we're told? The very same thing. The Holy Spirit kept them from going to Bithynia. And much to our chagrin, we're given no commentary on even what that means when we read it in Acts 16, other than simply to know that the Spirit of the Lord didn't allow them to go where they had planned to go. So the Apostle Paul, and I have to imagine, he's a little discouraged at this point. I don't think I'm out on a limb to suggest that. Here he has attempting two times to go to places to do good, to do good work of ministry, and God has stood in his way by the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish it. And maybe he's beginning to think, okay, ministry from here on out is going to be a process of elimination. We're just going to try things and see what sticks to the wall. And if God lets us go and accomplish those things, then we're going to say that was his mission and his desire. And they go down to Troas. And while they're in Troas, Paul has a vision. He has a vision of a man in Macedonia who is crying out to Paul saying, come and help us in Macedonia. The Apostle Paul rightly concludes that this is God in the midst of the vision calling him to go to Macedonia and to do work uh, among the people of Macedonia. And it's there where Paul pushes off from the coast and lands and comes ashore in the small but very significant city of Philippi. Now, Philippi, as you can hear, Philippi in Macedonia, some of you who know your history pretty well, hear Philip of Macedon in that. He was actually the father of Alexander the Great, um, a very important historical figure. And when Paul lands right there in Philippi, a city that's storied, even in the literature of Shakespeare, for instance, uh, this city becomes the very first outpost of the gospel in Western Europe. Now you think about that for just a minute. The very first outpost of the gospel in Western Europe. For the next 
2,000 years, the center of Christianity is going to move and conquer Western Europe. Where did it begin? In the second missionary of the Apostle Paul in the little city of Philippi. And guess how it happened? By God's plans and not man's. Isn't that beautiful? This is God's mission. He's establishing his kingdom. This is a gospel work. This is a reminder that the mission of God is accomplished by God and not man. Why is Paul in Philippi? Not because he dreamed up a great strategy of conquering Western Europe with the gospel. He was there because the Lord had forbade him to go to the places that he wanted to go. And in that failed ministry attempt, God had, through a vision, sent him to Philippi and he would use the catalyzation of this brand new church in Philippi as a means by which to spread the gospel to places who had never heard of Jesus Christ. Listen, what an important lesson that is for us. How often do you put your mind and your heart to things that you, you know are good? Like going to visit the churches that have already been planted to strengthen them in the gospel. And you find yourself either unfruitful, you find obstacles or hindrances. And then as you go along the way, often defeated and frustrated, maybe even at your wit's end, God surprises you with his mission along the way and you begin to realize, now let me remember, this is God's church, not mine. This is God's life, not mine. This is God's time, not my own. These are God's resources, not mine. And we begin to realize that the more we relinquish ourselves into the mission and the plan of God, the more we begin to see his power demonstrated in and through our lives. Do you know what the power of mission is? The emptying of you and the filling of the Holy Spirit with the power of the gospel. The emptying of you and the filling of the Holy Spirit in the power of the gospel. And this beautiful church, now the church at Philippi, becomes the first church in Western Europe that is founded by the Apostle Paul. Now that, that gospel mission, the establishment of gospel mission, really leads us into part of the reason the Apostle Paul loves this church so much and why he's so joyous about it. it it's got to be a great story for him to be able to tell as he's going around preaching the gospel of how the Lord planted the church in Philippi and it had nothing to do with the plans of men. And we see something of the Apostle Paul's joy and humility even in the way that he introduces this letter. This gospel establishment in mission leads us to what we see as a gospel salutation at the introduction of this letter. Now I want you to look at the first two verses with me in Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul opens up his letter as anybody would open up a letter with a kind of dear Paul. He introduces himself. He makes himself known and lets them know who it is that's writing the letter. But what's surprising about his opening and what should jump off from for you and I in the reading of those opening verses is the fact that there's no sense of Paul's resume here. There's no sense of of a, of a detailed CV or a piling up of titles um, for Paul saying, I'm writing to you an authoritative letter being carried along by the Holy Spirit, speaking to you the very word of God as an apostle of God. There's no sense of that kind of, of weight that's put at the front of the letter. Sometimes the apostle Paul does that in his letters. Rather than that, the apostle Paul simply says he's a servant. He's a servant of Jesus Christ. He's a servant of Jesus Christ. 
Now, Paul, later in this letter, if you look ahead to Philippians chapter 3, he's going to tell you a lot about his credentials. He's going to do it to illustrate a point that credentials are not a big deal, are not important. They're not the thing when it comes to the work of the gospel. He's going to say, listen, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was born of the tribe of Benjamin. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. According to the law, I was utterly blameless. He could have gone on and said, oh, and by the way, the, Lord, the risen Lord Jesus Christ appeared to me on the road to Damascus and called me personally into ministry as the apostle to the Gentiles, which is all the world that's not Jewish. By the way, that's all a part of my pedigree, but he doesn't mention any of that here, does he? The thing that he wants the church at Philippi to know is that he is a servant of Jesus Christ. Now that word servant is literally the lowest of the words that can be used in terms of station in the Greek language. It's the word doulos. It means a bond slave. He is one who has no rights of his own. He has given up his rights. He's relinquished himself in service to the Lord Jesus Christ. He has been bought with a price. He is no longer his own. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying as he's writing to the church at Philippi. Now, here's what's so interesting about that is Paul is, is writing from a place of service to Christ in humility, not full of himself, but full of his master. And here's why that's so important. If you're a servant or a slave, the only thing that's important about you is your master. Think of that. If you're a servant or a slave, the only thing that's important about you is your master. And so what does the Apostle Paul want the church at Philippi to know? Nothing about his pedigree or his resume. He just wants them to know the only thing that's worth knowing about me is my master. I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, that that spirit would take hold of us. Oh, that that spirit would take hold of me. That, that I'd get out of the way. That you'd get out of the way of the work that the Lord has called us to do. That we'd be self-forgetful and Christ-remembering in all that we do. That we would say the only thing that credentials us at all is being in Christ, in relationship to Christ, being dependent on Christ. He is the only competency we have for the living of the Christian life and the exercise of any ministry. He's a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's also what's interesting. Notice who he's writing to. Notice who he's writing to. He's writing to the saints, all the saints who are in Philippi. All the saints who are in Philippi. Now, isn't that interesting? Do you see what Paul has done here? He has made himself a servant of Jesus Christ. But what has he said to the church at Philippi? You are saints in the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't this the picture of what real gospel servanthood is all about? Paul's going to say later in this letter that real gospel ministry comes when we consider others' interests over and above our own. Notice in Paul's description at the very beginning of this letter, he has a high acclaim for the people of Philippi. He calls them saints. But when he considers himself, he is merely a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has considered others and their interests and their position and their status, even above himself as he considers them before the very face of the Lord Jesus Christ, even at this moment. 
Now, Paul isn't meaning to say, don't hear that in any way, where Paul is saying they are actually more important than he is. We don't mean that in any doctrinal theological way, but he has put it in a practical way. The practical way is he is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ to the church at Philippi, and when he considers them, he sees them as all saints before the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees them in relationship to Jesus. You see, he's doing the same thing he did with himself. The only thing worth knowing about me is that I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. And when I look at you, you know what I don't see? Ethnicity as a leading factor, your IQ level, your job, your socioeconomic construct, your likability, your Enneagram number. I, we could go on. I, you know, when I look at you, that's not what I think about. When I look at you, you know what I see when I see you? I, I see saints of the living God. You know, when he's saying that, he's saying, I'm seeing you with the eyes of Christ. I'm seeing you in the identity of Christ. I'm writing to you as one who is a saint of the living God. Now, as you hear that word saint, you may be thinking to yourself, I'm beginning to wonder if this letter is for me. Because if he's writing to saints, I'm about as far from a saint as anyone can be. Anybody in here feel that way when you, when you hear him say he's writing to saints in here? That's often how we use that phrase, isn't it? Where we'll say something like, well, I'm no saint. Now, my grandma, she was a, she was a saint. She was a, she was a dear saint. She's right next to the throne of grace. And what we mean by that is that she was a really, really good Christian. That's, that's what we mean about it. And we, what we kind of do when we use the word that way is we're actually saying there's this inner ring, this smaller group of very privileged and special Christians who are really, really good, and they uh, identify with the word saint. That's what we're saying when we use the term that way. And in fact, our, our, in the Roman Catholic tradition, as many of you will know, saint is actually used in that very way. It was in the 10th century that uh, the Pope actually established a process for acknowledging and recognizing saints. And they had to have heroic sanctity. They had to do some things in order to become a saint. The Apostle Paul doesn't mean that at all. He doesn't mean that at all. He, he means saint in its original way that it's used in the Greek, which is someone who has been set apart or consecrated unto the Lord. Do you know that's who you are if you're in Christ? The church is actually called the people who are called out. That's what the word ecclesia means. The word ecclesia is the word for ecclesiology or the study of the church. The church, the word literally means called out ones. What are we called out from? Called out from the world unto God. Set apart unto God. And this is why Peter will say things like, you are a chosen people. You are a holy nation. You are a people for God's own possession. Does he mean that you're amazing and awesome and righteous and holy in every way? No. He means you've trusted in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and all of his credentials and merits and righteousness has been charged to your account so much so that right now you have all the blessings of the heavenly places. You are fully the sanctified ones, the saints in Christ. That's who you are. It's amazing how much theology, isn't it, that's right here in just the salutation right at the very beginning of this letter. The Apostle Paul, as he thinks about himself, as he thinks about the church at Philippi, he is just saturated in reflection about the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Today, no matter how it is that you feel or think about yourself or no matter what it is that's happened over the course of the last 24 hours or the last seven days, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, his righteousness has been credited to you, charged to your account. You are a saint of the living God. That's who you are. And it doesn't have anything to do with you. It has to do with who's got you. It has to do with your Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. And you can imagine when he says that to the church at Philippi, as they're reading, oh, Paul's a servant, but he's calling us saints. He's reminding us of who we are in Christ. Now, I have to bring out this note briefly. You notice that as he writes, he writes to the saints in Christ Jesus who were at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. Well, we're in the middle of a nomination process. How can I not underscore the note of what the Apostle Paul is mentioning here in Philippians chapter 1? That word overseer is a word that's directly associated with elder. If you look at Acts chapter 20, as the Apostle Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders right before he leaves that beloved congregation that he served for a couple of years, as he speaks to them, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. In 1 Peter chapter 5, he says, I exhort you elders, or this is Peter writing, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of his glory, shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight. To, to speak of overseers is to speak of the elders. And then notice, secondly, he speaks of the, the second office in the church, the office of deacon. Those deacons who are elected and appointed to give merciful care to the physical needs of the body of Christ. We see them first presented in Acts chapter 6. When, when the apostles come together and they realize that the, the need of the community is much greater than they can meet, and they say to the church there at Jerusalem, listen, we shouldn't forsake the word of God and prayer in order to, to, to serve meals to those who are in need, in order to wait tables is literally the language there of Acts chapter 6. Now in saying that, they're not in any way denigrating waiting tables or doing ministries of mercy. They're simply saying our calling from the Lord is this. And it's, we cannot forsake our calling to serve tables. What we really need is other men to be appointed for this work. And there we see men who are appointed to the, to the work of the diaconate uh, there in uh, Acts chapter 6. Now, as Paul writes, this is just so smart of the Apostle Paul, so wise. Notice what he says. He writes to the saints who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Notice he writes with them. He writes to the saints, but he writes with the overseers and the deacons. He wants them to know as he writes, he doesn't write against them, their leadership, their local leadership. He doesn't write in contradiction to them. He writes as one who is with them. He's coming with one voice with the local leadership there in Philippi. And there's a good reason why we believe the Apostle Paul has an inside track on what's going on in Philippi. And we'll get to that here in just a second. But I think one of the questions to really ask yourself as we conclude this particular point is what is the normal way that you think about and then describe yourself? What is the way that you typically think about or describe yourself? Notice the labels that Paul has used here. 
servant of Jesus Christ, saint, overseers, and deacons. Notice all the descriptions and terminologies relate to their relationship to Jesus and to his church. All of the descriptions. All of those in whom he's speaking of here relate to their relationship to Jesus Christ and to the church. And he says, these are the ways in which I speak to you because these are the descriptions of who you actually are. How is it that you think about yourself and describe yourself? I, I, I'm not suggesting you should put on your stationary saint of the Lord Jesus Christ necessarily. But I am suggesting directly more time in thinking around the terms that the Bible gives to describe us probably is deeply encouraging to our understanding of both who we are in Christ and in our service to Christ. We see a gospel mission established here through Philippi. We see a gospel salutation in the first couple of verses. But, but thirdly, we see a gospel thanksgiving. And we'll finish our time on this particular point. Look at what the Apostle Paul says as he opens up, really the body of the letter of, of Philippians. He says, I thank my God... In all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine. Wow, look at those comprehensive terms. It even reads funny, doesn't it? In all my remembrance, always in every prayer of mine. He's, he's almost in a hyperbole feeling way describing his thanksgiving and affection and prayers for the church at Philippi. Except it's not hyperbole. He loves this congregation very, very deeply. Now here's part of what's remarkable and this needs to be drawn out at this moment. The first thing on the lips of the Apostle Paul is thanksgiving to God for the church at Philippi. Now, here's why that's remarkable. I hinted at this at the very beginning of the service today. Where is the Apostle Paul? He's in prison. This is one of his prison letters. In fact, the best scholarship believes he's in prison at this point in Rome. And he's going to allude to this actually next week in a passage we'll look at in verse 7. He's going to talk about his imprisonment and several times he'll talk about his chains throughout this letter. Now here's what's remarkable. Think of this. Bound by chains, locked away in the damp darkness of, of some dungeon-like prison cell in the first century there in Rome with the smell of urine and refuse around him with heaven knows what going on in the midst of it. The Apostle Paul is writing the letter of Philippians and his very first word is thanksgiving. <laughs> his very first word of thanksgiving. You, you don't know how convicting that is to me. I wonder how convicting it is for you. I mean, this week I had computer problems. And I thought it was the end of the world. There's nothing more frustrating to me than computer problems and car problems. Because those things just seem to stop me from doing the things that I want to do, that I have planned to do. And this week had computer problems. And I, you know, thought I might have to use a pen and paper. And the thought just, you know, upset me deeply. Deep first cent 21st century issues here. While the Apostle Paul, as I'm studying the letter of Philippians, the Apostle Paul is locked away in a prison. And if we go back and look in Acts chapter 16, when he was in prison there, he was singing hymns. 
He was singing hymns. He was leading the choir uh, in the midst of the prison there in Philippi. Um, It's remarkable that on the front of his mind and the top of his heart, coming from his lips is a spirit of thanksgiving. I love the old Puritan saying, maybe you know it, a thankful heart is a continual feast. A thankful heart is a continuing feast. You've probably done the exercise likely in November when you've had to pause It may be in the midst of grumbling and complaining about something and had to be forced to think about the things that are good that the Lord has given to you or done for you or whatever. And when you do that, don't you just find your heart just calm down, be at peace. The spirit of gratitude begins to overcome you and you begin to see things in their appropriate order and you begin to realize all the things I've been stressing about aren't really that big of a deal and I've made a much out of nothing and God has been so good and I have neglected to see it and all of a sudden the blessings of the Lord begin to be more real to us than the troubles or the difficulties or the lacks that we feel in the midst of our lives and what begins to bubble up, some praise and some prayer. That's what's happening to the Apostle Paul here. As he's reflecting on the church at Philippi, he, he, the prayer of thanksgiving begins to bubble forth from his heart. And so I want you to just ask this question with me today. Where could we get a thanksgiving heart like the Apostle Paul? How, how could that happen? How could that happen? Um, in, the midst of, in the midst of a life where even as we've talked about this morning, our plans are going to fail... Our resources are not going to be where we wish they were. Our relationships aren't going to be quite to the maturity or intimacy we wish that things were. And the control impulse that's so strong in all of us to be our own God rather than to entrust these things to God. All of these things are draining us of a real sense of thanksgiving. I want you to see what the Apostle Paul does for the experience of thanksgiving. Two things that Apostle Paul does here from which a gospel thanksgiving comes. And here's the first one. Thanksgiving flows from remembering the power of the gospel among God's people. Thanksgiving flows from remembering the power of the gospel among God's people. Listen to how Paul says it. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. His heart is brimming with thanksgiving. Why? Because he's full of remembrance of what God has done in the church at Philippi. Well, what has God done in the church at Philippi? Well, let me tell you what at least we know that God has done in the church of Philippi. If you go back to Acts chapter 16, we see amazing works of God as the apostle Paul came ashore there in Philippi. Do you remember the merchant, the seller of purple goods by the name of Lydia? She was the very first convert in Philippi. When the apostle Paul comes to Philippi, he encounters Lydia. He preaches the gospel to Lydia, and on the spot, she and her household believe in the gospel and are baptized. It's a beautiful picture of the power of the gospel. When he remembers them, certainly he remembers Lydia. She comes to mind. But think of who else is there in Philippi. Think of the young girl who was demon-possessed. The young girl who had a spirit of divination, who, think of how sad this is in the human trafficking 
mess that we see and grievance that we see in our own day and time. She's owned by someone there in Philippi, and they're using this spirit of divination as a kind of circus act to tell other people about their futures. That's how she's being leveraged in Philippi in the first century. She sees the Apostle Paul and Silas and Timothy, and she begins to shout and distract uh, that men of the Most High God coming to preach the gospel are in our midst, and she begins to be distracting. And what does the Apostle Paul do? He exercises the demon out of that young girl and brings her to peace. And immediately what happens? Well, everybody gets upset about it. Well, especially the owners. Because now their source of income has been drained. And so they go complain to the Roman officials and magistrates. And what happens? They put the Apostle Paul in prison. And we think to ourselves, well, this <laughs> here is I'm following God's vision in Macedonia. And I'm going to plant a church in Philippi. And I end up where? I end up in prison. Here is your picture of God-led ministry. And as he's there singing at the top of his lungs in prison... An earthquake happens, and the doors swing open, and the shackles break free, and the jailer, who's there on the night shift, thinks that everybody has probably left and gone as he comes to and goes and checks on and, and, and he pulls his sword to kill himself because he knows he's not going to survive his authorities, his figures above him, if he lets all the prisoners go. And the Apostle Paul yells and says, no, put away your sword, we're all here. And what does that man say? The next thing out of his lips... What must I do to be saved? And there on the spot, he's converted. And then his whole household is baptized. And, and not long after that, the Apostle Paul has to leave Philippi. He's run out on a rail. But these are the stories that the Apostle Paul would be thinking of when he says, I thank my God in all my remembrances of you. I thank my God in all my remembrances of you. What a beautiful testimony of what it means to gain a heart of thanksgiving. How have you seen God at work in the people around you? Where have you seen his grace at work in the life of this congregation or in our community? Where has he been at work in the midst of your family? As our eyes are peeled towards the redemptive power of the gospel in the, in the changed lives of which the gospel enters, we begin to find ourselves full of thanksgiving. But that's not, that's not the only thing. Notice what else Paul says secondly. He says the other thing that brings thanksgiving into his heart and his life is the recognition of enduring gospel partnerships. Enduring gospel partnerships. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you are making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This church has not been a church that got excited about the gospel and then fell off the map. They were not seeds that were planted in shallow soil or in thorny soil. They went deep. And in their depth, the, the seed of the gospel bore fruit that forged enduring partnership with the, with the Apostle Paul with the church at Philippi. Now what's interesting about this, this, this partnership is Paul describes it in a word that you know really well. It's you know, maybe the only Greek word that you could, you could just pull up at any point in time. It's the Greek word koinia. 
It's it's the Greek word that is used very commonly for the term fellowship. You'll notice the translators of the ESV actually use the word um, partnership rather than fellowship. And actually many translations opt for partnership and I commend them for doing so. And there's a lot of good reasons why, but one reason is this. When you think of fellowship, you probably, like most North Americans, think of a fellowship hall or a fellowship meal. And you think of some food and some Christian chit-chat. That's not what the Apostle Paul has in mind at all. The fellowship that he's speaking of is a partnership wherein they have joined themselves to the Apostle Paul in belief in the message of the gospel and in the mission that the gospel has called them to. Those are two points that you're going to see Paul emphasize throughout this letter. They have believed in the message of the gospel and they are walking in accordance to the mission of the gospel. Now, why why do I say that? This church has been under persecution. Philippi is under attack. You're going to note it several times as we work through the letters. There's attacks from within and there's attacks from without. They're obviously struggling with unity at the point that the Apostle Paul is writing. He's going to bring that up a few times over the course of the letter. But notice when he uses the word partnership, what is he invoking in their own hearts and minds as he writes it? Unity. I thank God for the unity that I've shared with you around the teachings and the beliefs of the gospel message itself. And I thank God for the unity and the solidarity that we have enjoyed in the mission of God. In fact, you know how united they were in the message and the mission of the gospel? As Paul is writing this letter, Timothy is right there with him. But you know who also is there? We haven't mentioned his name yet. Epaphroditus. And you think, oh yeah, Epaphroditus. Who is he? Epaphroditus is from Philippi. Epaphroditus is one of the best and the brightest in Philippi. One of the servants in Philippi. The church at Philippi had heard about the Apostle Paul's imprisonment in Rome. And they took up a massive collection of money. And they sent it by way of Epaphroditus. And he came the long trek from Philippi to Rome to support the mission needs of the Apostle Paul. To give him encouragement and strength in the ministry. And Epaphroditus almost died in the process. In fact, when he showed up to hand the gift to the Apostle Paul, he was deathly ill, so much so that he had to stay for a while before the Apostle Paul could send him back. Well, guess who's delivering this letter to the church at Philippi? Healthy Epaphroditus. He has sent Epaphroditus back. So when he says, you have been my partners in the gospel, he doesn't merely mean we, we enjoyed some coffee and donuts together. You gave of your money And you gave of your health, you gave your best and your brightest to secure the expansion and the spread of the gospel to the then known world. We have fellowship in Christ together. That's pretty pretty amazing. So that makes you wonder if you have a home fellowship group, doesn't it? When you begin to define terms biblically and we begin to drill into what we actually mean by the terminology of the Bible, do we have Gospel partnerships enduring from this time all the way until now. The Apostle Paul is saying, I see that in you, church at Philippi. You know what I see in you, at church at Philippi? Epaphroditus came with more money than you actually have, as he's going to tell the church at Corinth. Paul tells the church at Corinth, let me tell you about Philippi. They're amazing. They gave more money than they actually have. 
And they sent some of their best to me in order to care for me in the midst of my imprisonment. And when I saw that, you know what I saw? I saw Jesus Christ. I saw Jesus who came with everything that was his on a mission to take care of those who couldn't take care of themselves and who not only almost died but died in the process in order that I might live and continue to advance the spread of the mission. When I saw Epaphroditus show up while I was in shackles in Rome, I saw the Lord Jesus Christ. I knew this was a true gospel partnership. Now, friends, let me ask you something. Would you like to join a church like Philippi? I would. Now, I'll tell you, that would be hard for us to do in Middle Tennessee. But it'd be pretty pretty exciting if the church of Philippi showed up right here at Cornerstone Presbyterian Church, wouldn't it? That the same spirit that gave birth to the church at Philippi and filled them with a sacrificial spirit committed to the message of the gospel and the mission of the gospel, willing to be spent for the Lord Jesus Christ and even willing to die if need be for its advance is the kind of pressing on towards the goal that we're after here at Cornerstone. How is the Lord calling you? Where is he leading you? What is it that he would have for you? At the time in which he has placed you, where are the areas that you are holding on to the things of this world rather than holding on to the realities of the gospel in Christ? What are the things that you're prizing more than the mission of Christ? What is the message you're believing more than the message of Christ? As we go through the letter of Philippians, keep asking yourself those questions. And I promise I'll do the same for me. And together, let's press on towards the goal. Father in heaven, we ask that you would indeed now, through the power of the Holy Spirit, strengthen us in the message that we have heard from you to guide us into not just this week, but through this series, that we might become a church that sees the upward prize of the call of Christ Jesus and can say with full integrity to live as Christ and to die as gain, forgetting what lies behind, we strain to what's ahead. O oh, Father, answer this prayer according to your will. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.